Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, Heart of Healthcare listeners. Today, I'm so excited to have an old friend on the show, Ryan Pichatsaram. Ryan was part of the original group of Rock Health founders back in 2011, and it's been so fun to kind of grow up together in healthcare. So some background on Ryan. I don't even know where to start. The company Ryan started at Rock Health was acquired by Ginger.io, which was eventually acquired by Headspace, as most of you know. Ryan uh, went on to become Deputy Chief Technology Officer for the entire United States, where he helped shape an $80 billion federal budget and helped launch healthcare.gov. He was on the cover of Time Magazine. He represented the U.S. at the United Nations. He became a venture capitalist, where he invested in my last company, Natalist. And then most recently, he co-authored an amazing book with John Doerr. Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis, brings together everything he has worked on to lay out what we need to do to avert a climate catastrophe. And this is what I want to talk about on the show today. Ryan, thank you for being here. Hallie, it's a joy to be here. <laughs> So, okay, you're you're a climate guy now, but you're still a healthcare guy. The word action plan is in the title of your book. Can we just start by telling us the 10-step plan to cut greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2050? Of course. So, Speed and Scale, it's a detailed action plan for tackling the climate crisis. And it's uh for your listeners, I actually have a feeling a lot of them know what objectives and key results are, <laughs> OKRs. And so we use the OKR system to break down the problem, right? We emit 59 billion tons of carbon dioxide equivalent greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so we've got six solutions, right? Electrifying transportation, decarbonizing the grid, fixing our food system, protecting nature cleaning up industry, and then removing the stubborn carbon that's left over. So the book talks about the solutions in the first part. And then the second part of the book talks about how we get there faster, right? Because these solutions could take, you know, the next 50 to 100 years to come to play. But we need to cut our emissions in half this decade and then all the way by 2050. And so we lean on four accelerants. It's about winning the policy and politics, turning movements into action, innovation, and investment. And so that's the plan. 10 objectives, each supported by three to five key results and measures that if we move, we know we're tackling this problem effectively. And how often will you be checking in on these OKRs to see if we're meeting our goals? 
Yeah. So we've been, ever since the book was published, which was at the end of 2021, we've updated the website, speedandscale.com, with the status of these different OKRs. And so every quarter we update them. And we're actually in the middle of updating the book as well, because so much has happened since 2021, right? In 2023, there's lots of momentum on things like the deployment of electric vehicles, the cost of solar and wind dropping, the, the winds in the United States, like the Inflation Reduction Act. But there's also places where we're not doing so well, Hallie, right? The unprovoked attack of Russia to Ukraine really caused the world to burn more coal, right? Because of the disconnection of natural gas to Europe. We're also still emitting near the same amount this year that we did last, right? So we're still emitting, you know, when you think about the number that matters the most, we're not moving that number as fast as we should. What grade would you give us overall? Oh, well, we're clearly... <laughs> give we're, give we're, me a letter. <laughs> give me a letter. Uh, well, we're clearly off track. I would say we are at a D to F scale on where we are today. But, you know, you and I, and I think everyone who listens, we are eternal optimist in some way and trying to find where the gems are. So when you look to things like the electrification of transportation, right, the sheer number of electric vehicles being bought today globally, right, is reaching the 10 to 11 percent that are electric. In some places in China, it's all the way near 100. In some places in Europe, the same. And so what you can see there is countries that prioritize the electrification, you can see a massive wave shift over to it. And so you can see those eight gigatons. There's a way to reduce those. When you look at things like, yes, we're still burning coal, you do see the cost of clean energy rapidly dropping, right? Solar and wind, you know, a lot of us have heroes in the climate space that we've been following for the past two, three decades. Like you have Al Gore, who has consistently told us that solar and wind will be cheaper one day. Mm -hmm. And then 2018, 2019 rolls around and that cost crossover happens. And now all of a sudden, it is the economic thing to do to deploy more solar and wind, right? Yeah. Like, and so things like that give me hope because when market forces and the economics are behind the clean green thing, you can be more certain that they, that they'll happen. Yeah. Okay. So on the electric car thing, I, yes. I, uh, got my second hybrid car and my very old school father seems to think that the battery on electric cars and hybrid cars is worse than just using gas in the first place. How do I argue with yeah. him about this? Two, two fronts, right? The first is when you think about a battery, right? The battery that you have in your car, you keep recharging it and you ultimately will get to use it over the course of the car's lifetime. And then when you buy a new car, that battery gets recycled, right? We don't recycle gasoline. We pump it into our cars, burn it, and pounds of CO2 go into the air, right? So that's on one side. It's like when you think about gasoline, when you think about the battery, is the fact that we get to, to get to reuse it. The other piece too is you'll see these pictures of the mining of batteries and how destructive it is and how bad it is. There's some truth to that, that what the mining practices for batteries have to get better, right? You know, with this injection of capital in the United States to mine more domestically, I think you're going to see more responsible practices for mining. But when you like zoom out and look at the extractive practices of coal, gas, fracking, and all of the above, the amount of damage that does to our natural ecosystems and so forth, it's worse, right? And so I think it's very easy to try to poke at those things, but in the reality, it's not it yes. just doesn't add up. Perhaps yeah. it's the lesser of the two evils, but still work to be done. That's right. I think absolutely. It is 
Let's see. Yeah. Is it the lesser of two evils? That's a good, good it's a good, <laughs> it's. Uh, I hope it is. <laughs> oh, I was going to say if the other path is even the evil one, right? Like oh, I think yeah, you I can you. pick and poke at ways yeah. the, the practice today isn't done well, but you can always find a path. Yeah. Like you can actually like draw a line to how the mining can be done more responsibly. The mining can be done cleaner. Recycling gets done. And so you actually have this really clean path for how we move people around. Well, I'll say I, when gas prices were going crazy last year, I was very happy plugging in my car. Oh yeah. I felt very good about it. I had no regrets. You know, in the, in the, in the, the race for decarbonizing our vehicles, there was this moment when, is it going to be hydrogen? Is it going to be the fuel cell? Is it going to be electric? And what's been shown this past decade, kudos to Tesla, kudos to BYD in China, they've showed that lithium ion can actually be a more cost-effective approach, right? Because of their scale, they were able to drop down those prices. But there's something about having a plug in your garage that means you have a gas station in every home. Sure, this doesn't fix it for apartments and condos and other shared living situations. But for the American home, all of a sudden, there's a quote-unquote gas pump there. And so when folks talk about hydrogen cars, in some way, that's off the table because the electric revolution has not only proven it's working really well, people are finding it quite convenient. The part where the range anxiety is, is for those longer trips. And that's where we need great electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And there's money flowing behind that to make that happen. Yeah. Um, that's why I but, haven't jumped totally to electric. So my my Volvo does 40 miles on a charge, which is amazing. Uh, my day to day. I never need to get gas. But if I needed to do a road trip, I'd have that option, which is kind of like, I haven't totally moved over to electric, but I, you know, I've probably filled up my gas tank twice in the last year. Which really means that like for more than, you know, 90% of the year, Hallie, you're driving an electric vehicle. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, a thing to throw out on this topic, because this shift to electric or plug-in hybrids is going to take 10 to 15 to 20 years, right? We keep our cars longer. And then just because you, you know, sell your car, someone, someone's going to use it for, two or three more life cycles. And so, you know, cities really need to find a way mm. to get people out of vehicles. And yeah. when you read Speed and Scale, we're super nerdy, but <laughs> we have found a very innovative thing that cities can do, which is the protected bike lane, Hallie. Uh, like it is yeah. a- <laughs> Okay, let's talk about the protected bike lane because that's also a public health initiative. I feel like the climate warriors and the public health geeks can kind of come together on this front. Completely, right? So number one source of pollution emissions in a city is these cars. And so when they become electric, you eliminate that, right? Not completely because tires still produce a little bit of particulates, but you, you eliminate the CO2 emissions piece. But still, that's going to take too long. And so the protected bike lane is a way that a mayor who's in office today or an elected official today can carve up a street, move bikers into it, which keeps them safer. But then what we saw through COVID and through many studies that have happened in the past two to three years is when you make biking safer, uptake happens. It's like mm. this no brainer kind of thing, right? Like yeah. people don't bike in cities because it's dangerous, right? Yeah. We see too many stories of people getting hit. And the truth is when you've painted a lane on a road or you have what these called are sharrows, you know, when you just draw an arrow on the street to say, hey, a biker might be here. Car drivers don't care. That's still their road predominantly. Yeah. And so when you look to other countries and other cities like Paris, or you look to the Nordic region, you have 
amazing biking infrastructure, everything from highways to parking and people use it, rain or shine, snow or hot weather. And the idea is to get the bike lane closer to the sidewalk so that the parked cars are kind of protecting the bike lane versus the bikers being kind of the buffer between the moving cars and the parked cars, right? <laughs> that, that's right. Because when, yeah. when the bikers are the buffer, by the way, like yeah. the, the number one way people get injured is actually doors opening oh, into them, yeah. right? Oh my and gosh. So, yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that can be done by a sitting elected official yeah. today, which is kind of neat, right? You, you set up the plan, you spend a lot less than trying to build an underground subway, or you spend a lot less than trying to like roll out EV infrastructure quite often. And you actually get a community alive again, right? We've designed the United States so beautifully to make it really easy to move cars around, right? Like we've gotten, you know, asked about grades, we get an A plus for car infrastructure <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the United States, right? You're, you're from, Ohio, you know, yeah. you're from Ohio. There's yeah. these photos of the downtown areas and some of your, the big cities there and sure. they were gorgeous. Yeah. And then we needed to put these really big lanes in the middle of things. And yeah. we made these trade-offs and it's not too late to say, okay, cool. We got an A plus on biking. What's the next elective? Okay. The next elective here yeah. is making our cities safer. And honestly, when you do this, I think when we talk about the health benefits of it, right, people are actually being more active. Oh, for but, sure. But there's also like a, the mental health piece here of being outside of a car, seeing a neighbor, seeing kids interacting with people in a way where yeah. I think the culture here in the U.S. is quite often you are in your home, you hop into your car, you go into work and you come back or you go to a, st we're yeah. very sheltered in the way we move yet yeah. everywhere else in the world, you run into people all the time oh, yeah. and that's what makes you human. That's what, you know, it's interesting. I always say when I moved from Cleveland to New York, the winters were worse in New York because in Cleveland, I never experienced the winters because I went from my house to my garage to a parking garage at the mall to, to a parking lot at school. And so you never, you know, you never experienced elements when I lived in New York city, obviously in the winter, I had to experience all of it. I do think that there's uh, certainly a mental health benefit of being outside vitamin D, the lack of stress from being in, you know, a, a gridlock parking on the freeway, et cetera, uh, makes the commutes a little bit more enjoyable. There's this beautiful piece in the New York times this past weekend about teenagers when they finally get their cars, right? I think you and I probably when we got our car keys, you know, there's this moment of empowerment, right? And it talks about how these, it just really is poetic, right? About them getting their keys, them finally feeling like they can leave their home and they can explore. And I got all the feels because that was me, you know, when I was yeah. 16. But now that I've, you know, a lot older and looking back, you realize we kind of trap our kids and our communities by making you need a car to move around, mm -hmm. right? You don't see these nostalgic stories of getting your car being an empowering moment for kids in Europe, kids in Asia and other places, right? Like for them, they've been able to just get into the bus or yeah. take the Metro or ride their bike. And it's kind of this fascinating thing that where we keep our kids that don't live in cities that have good transportation, like locked up till they get a car and that's when they yeah. can experience the world. And that's really unfair and a toll on their mental health. Yeah. Well, I'm going to plug the Heart of Healthcare episode 15 with 
Deborah Herzman, who I you introduced me to, who was the chief safety officer at Waymo, and she was the CEO of the National Safety Council, board member at the National Transportation Safety Board. And she, we had an amazing episode about car crashes as a leading cause of death. And mm-hmm. just thinking about the amount of lives that could be saved if we didn't spend so much time in our cars. It would be yeah. radically transformative. Yeah. And the cool thing about this, like one thing I want to kind of carry through our conversation yeah. is you know, while the book is about climate, you're right. <laughs> I am a healthcare person first. We don't have to say the word climate, by the way, anymore, Hallie, about anything. And I will tell you why these actions that we have to take to tackle our climate crisis improve our lives in such meaningful, direct ways, mm. right? So on the electric vehicle front, it's cleaner air and getting out, actually out and using your body and experiencing people, right? And when we jump to the other categories, I can share more about how it's not about always yeah. the CO2. There's another benefit as well, yeah. the health benefit. Yeah. I mean, environmental health is human health. And we know that a warming planet has a lot of negative impacts on health, longevity for so many reasons. I, I mean, there are entire podcasts uh, where every episode goes into another aspect of environmental health. Uh, but I'm curious, when you were writing this book and really researching the impact on health, what really stood out to you? There were a a few layers, right? There's the health of the planet, and then there's the health of us living in it, right? And so when it comes to the health of the planet, there's this warming number that people keep talking about, right? When you hear it, it's like at Paris many years ago, we set out a target to keep warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's an important number because that's the average warming since pre-industrial you know, era that we're trying to keep it to, right? You know, with all the CO2 and greenhouse gases being emitted, we've warmed the planet. And we know that when things get warmer, things change, right? Uh, At the poles, things are melting and getting warmer, changing the weather patterns. It increases droughts, it increases extreme weather events. And so when you think about us as humans turning up the dial, we're actively doing it. And it's up to us to, to, to be the generation that says, okay, we're going to stop this. And it's up to all of us to say how fast we want to stop this. One thing to kind of share about this one and a half degree number, which I find fascinating, or when we talk about it, it's the average warming of the world. So it includes the warming of the oceans plus the land. And what's I find interesting is to up to up to this point in time, right? That means we've warmed 1.1 degrees already, right? So the world has changed. I think the part that most folks leave out, Hallie, is that because of the ocean warming versus land warming, it's actually warmed up a lot more on land, right? So when you take the two averages, right, it means it's in the oceans, it's only warmed less than a degree, but on land, it's already warmed 1.9 degrees centigrade, which is 3.4 degrees Fahrenheit. That is significant. And so I'm sort of trying to play through my head right now of how we as a team can say, you know, the average number is is good and all, but why are we talking about the land-based number, the number that you and I as people experience? I'm sort of having this public health moment where we're not doing a good enough job translating the science because 3.4 degrees Fahrenheit already warm today is a lot. People actually can 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 see and feel that. But when we talk about 1.1, 1.5 degrees Celsius, it just, I don't think translates for Americans the same. We'll be right back after the break. (sighs) 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. You know, I think about natural disasters and how we are seeing an increase in climate-related natural disasters. But I also want to talk about man-made disasters. And it feels like we're operating at a scale that we have never seen before in terms of things that we're doing to this, to our environment. And I want to talk about the recent train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, that was carrying toxic chemicals. And, you know, the details are still being sorted on on what's going to be the environmental and health impact. But people are saying that they're ill, they're sick. You know, we're, we have big concerns. Can you talk a little bit about this disaster in particular? And then just why can't we get our shit together and not have big messes like this? When you look at the current disaster that's happening, right? What's scary about it is that there are I think what is a near a thousand derailments that happen every year. And to your point though, when one that one happens and the train happens to carry chemicals that are wildly toxic and are entering our air and water stream and killing things, it makes you really question, do we have the right regulatory framework to keep us safe? We have a lot of folks in the political realm that keep saying, cut the red tape, cut back regulations, you know, companies will police and protect, you know, themselves because consumers will get upset enough, right? I think that model worked well when companies were a lot smaller, right? And so when a harm happened, it was just in a really small area. But today, companies are so much bigger and are so, you know, they carry larger payloads, they're more connected to the world And so when a failure happens, it hurts a lot more people or it takes down an entire system. And so this moment that's happening in Ohio is this reminder that we need, like this is why safety regulations exist. This is why there's that added tax in that space. And when we roll back regulations, this is what we should expect to see happen. And so I hope it's this reminder that, you know, on safety, that we can't sacrifice it when we know when something like this happens, you don't get to hit the undo button. Um, We don't get to hit the undo button when lives are lost. We don't get to hit the undo button when you decimate an entire little environmental ecosystem. It's also then, you know, you kind of move away from safety for a second here. It's also a question and a critique on our rail infrastructure in the country as well. Are we investing enough in it? If a thousand of these happen a year, like that sounds like a lot more likely than what's happening in other countries. I think we just need to look 
deep within us to say, what are the right things we should spend on to strengthen our infrastructure? And if it means stronger bridges, roads, and railways, and biking infrastructure, and all these things, like that's worth our tax dollars going to, right? Yeah, I think so. You asked the question a bit earlier too about the health aspect of it, right? I I jumped to the planetary health, but human health is actually the thing that we all revolve around, right? And so, you know, there's a few more areas where the book kind of drew us to, right? There was one really big, stark set of studies that showed the delta between socioeconomic and racial backgrounds on greenhouse gas related deaths, right? And that's really around air pollution. The fact that communities that are tend to have less money, live closer to freeways and places where you have lots of heavy wheeler trucks going by and and things like that. And there's always this thread to pull that's an environmental justice piece when you think about this decarbonization fight, right? You electrify vehicles, you electrify trucks, you push for clean air standards, you help the air quality in those communities. You take away the coal plant that was just upwind or downwind from them, and you improve their ability to breathe. On this topic of the ability to breathe, there's been the recent um, kind of a multi-part research, right? Consumer Reports was looking into gas stoves and mm, yeah, let's talk about the, gas stoves. Yeah, um, <laughs> the research that Consumer Reports did found that the amount of gases that were being released when your stove was off, when your stove was burning, was shocking, right? It's, uh, you know, natural gas, by the way, is methane and a bunch of other gases, but it's predominantly methane when you burn it. For for when you burn it, it produces byproducts like formaldehyde, carbon monoxide, and then nitrogen oxides as well. And it's been shown that nitrogen oxides lead to or are related to asthma. And so you had this, this, this study that uh, RMI, the Rocky Mountain Institute did, which showed that 13% of childhood asthma could be linked or related to the fact that gas stoves are burning in those homes. People have very fancy, expensive gas ranges because we've been told that those are better for mm-hmm. cooking. And so now this has become an issue for many more people than you know we originally thought. Completely. It also, well, one, I think it it hits you as a parent, right? You're a parent, I'm a parent. We we think we do good for our kids when we cook them a home-cooked meal, right? Like sometimes when you go to takeout, that's where you're like, okay, this is where the bad stuff comes from, right? But then all of a sudden to know that when I'm lighting up my gas stove, I am emitting a harmful set of gases into my kids' lungs. Like that's just really scary. And then when you kind of pull back the research on the ventilation and you realize that not all vented stoves actually vent to the outside. A lot of them just recirculate the air in the space, right? They use like a charcoal filter. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) And then you also peel back one more layer as well, too. I think, you know, when you look at the United States, how many people have gas stoves, it's still only like 30-ish to less than 40% of the country, right? So we've got this like sort of desirability effect of gas, right? Cooking over it. On one side, which we've been really drawn towards, but on the other, there's all this research now showing it's not healthy at all. And what's sort of neat about the moment in time we're in for electric vehicles, for solar and wind, and in this case, in your home cooking, there is an alternative that exists 
that's supposed to be pretty darn good. The induction stove, it boils things faster. It's more controlled. Some of the best chefs in the country use it in their Michelin star kitchens. It's just not popular here in the U.S., but with enough support because they tend to be a bit more expensive in some ways, like from the Inflation Reduction Act and other places, like induction stoves, Hallie, can be a real thing. Yeah. Do you think that we should ban gas stoves, installing new ones? The stove piece is the is the hard one, right? Because let's just put back on the speed and scale gigaton hat, right? When you think about natural gas use in the home, like 5% of it goes to the stove, right? 95% is actually to the furnace and the water boiler, right? So your uh, heating that's happening throughout where you live, as well as to keeping your water warm. And that's actually the place where the environmental you know, emissions problem is, right, for the climate crisis. It's that we need to switch those heaters to heat pumps and same with those water boilers as well, too. And what's neat about heat pumps is that they're electric, they're highly efficient. And so the switch to them, Hallie, is actually a way for a lot of families to save money and to keep their houses more consistently warm. And you'll always hear, you know, heat pumps don't work in the cold because they're a heat pump. And what's kind of funny about that is they work really well in the cold and they work really well in places that are not cold as well too. They're just really poorly branded. Like it is like a a thermal exchanger. Yeah, Yeah. it's a marketing issue. And so to your question of should we be banning stoves, I think you always should give people a choice. And I think when you talk to any parent after they hear this, they go, ah, well, I don't think I want that, but can you show me what a good induction stove looks like? Like we have a long way to go because there's a lot of homes that really the rest of homes, by the way, Hallie, that use electric stoves. And this is the old resistance way. And I say old because it's what's been done in the past, right? The coils that when you turn them on, it takes a long time to heat. And so there's even a marketing piece there to remind folks induction is different than electric. And so I think parents are going to (laughs) choose to want an induction stove. And then I think when you talk about a ban, it, it really is on the heating and water cooler side, sorry, water heater side. Like that, that's where a, an updated building code can come into play. And just to take that for two more seconds, it's like the way you do it is any new homes built, make sure they're built the right way. For older homes, when these appliances fail, provide incentives for families that can't afford it to be able to switch. And by the way, the Inflation Reduction Act does that, right? Provide incentives to make the switch easy, affordable, and happen. So one of the things we're constantly hearing is that eating less beef uh, is something that we can each do individually. And I've actually read that reducing our, uh, our, our beef consumption is actually more effective than even getting an electric car. Is that true? Ooh, this is, <laughs> this is where the either or piece, it's like, we have to do both. You got to get the EV and you have to eat less beef. This is, I think, the continual <laughs> perpetual right, don't ask too much of us. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the challenge, right? When you talk about like, reducing the emissions of humanity. It's like, you can't keep like, it's always different parts of (laughs) uh, pointing fingers at the other. And my sort of philosophy on this, Hallie, is like, if you can afford the cleaner alternative, you should be picking it, right? If you care about the climate, if you care about the future, if you care about kids and so forth, right? And so a very simple one there is like, if you're going to spend more than $50,000 on a car, right? A five-seater, you should be buying an electric vehicle. 
There are not enough vans yet on the market that are electric. There's literally just two, the Rivian and the Model X, and those are very expensive, right? So you can't demand people to do that. But you asked about beef, and I love that you asked about beef and not the trope of like, oh, you've got to go vegan to save the planet, right? Or, you know, when you look at emissions from all of proteins, yes, being vegetarian is radically the more carbon uh, less emitting um, option. But when you look at the scale of meat eating, it's actually beef and cheese and lamb that are by far the biggest culprits, right? And it's because beef and lamb are ruminants, right? These are animals that burp a lot and produce methane in their burps, which is a greenhouse gas. And so if you eat less beef, there will be less cows in the world to be slaughtered and so forth. And so by just removing that out of your diet or eating it far less, you are making a difference, right? And so I think there's this idea of if you get a chance, pick the lower emitting protein on the menu, right? If you see a fish on the menu and you were thinking about picking, you know, the pork or something else, like pick the fish because it's, it's better. Or if you see something that's made with chickpeas or tofu, like do that, right? Like work your way down. And I think that's where you have this plant-based meat movement that's trying to recreate the feeling of meat, but to really go to the bottom of the totem pole in a good way of what, you know, a low emitting protein is with chickpeas and stuff like that yeah. or, or pea protein. Well, not to plug another one of my podcasts, but we had an episode with the founder of Impossible Foods and his entire premise was, I actually don't care about food. I just want to stop climate change and really taking yeah. that approach. But they've these companies have been under heat lately, right? Like perhaps they're not as healthy as they made themselves out to be. I, I would say you've got uh, a hype cycle around them mm -hmm. that peaked and has come down to earth. And so these companies have a lot mm. to prove, Hallie, right? Like, yeah. do they actually taste better, right? What they found is folks have been picking them, but have they been sticking with them, right? That's the real, that's one of the real questions and tests. And then as well as, are they healthier for you, right? Some of them, right? It's hard to paint the entire industry at the brush because so many do so many different approaches, but yeah, it's a highly processed thing. And you have to question that, right? Like, yeah. do I want the highly processed version or can I actually just get the the bean patty? Oh my gosh. I love a black <laughs> right. bean burger. I know. Oh my gosh. I, I, I take that over fake meat any day. I, I, um, I kind of went down this, this thing where I like, I love actually the beyond meat impossible burgers, but I was like, well, what if it, what, like how hard is it to make your own kind of bean, you know, tempeh yeah. kind of patty with mushrooms and stuff. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun with it and. Maybe I can share, yeah, share the uh, experimental recipe. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. We'll share the recipe on, um, on the website. That would be great. But there's a lot, there's so much satisfaction, I think in seeing your food <laughs> and whether it's, and, and actually like cutting it yourself uh, and, you know, and, and making it there's, yeah. there's joy in that. But then I think you can also know Providence, like, right? Where did it yeah. come from? What, <laughs> what am I putting in my body? I, I mean, there's nothing that tastes better than something from my garden. I don't know if it's, if the produce is better, but it tastes better. And I think it's like when you're putting the work into it and you're investing the time into having this garden, you watch the development, you just have an appreciation for every berry, every leaf of lettuce, every stalk of broccoli. And so that's the health, right? Like there's a health yeah. piece to eating food that's just been picked. And I'll give you the quick climate piece too, which is the distance food travels. Mm. Think about that, right? Because th that's actually a lens. If you're picking between two things, it's like, yeah, get the stuff that was grown locally because that was just moved around, you know, this short distance. Yeah. And 
that's also something to think about when you think about clothes as well, or all these like the clothes oh. themselves aren't necessarily a highly emitting thing, but moving them around is. And when we do get, you know, electrified planes and electric vehicle vans and all that good stuff, then yeah, the emissions from clothes moving them around isn't going to be much. But for right now, when you think about just the tax, the carbon tax that comes from moving things, food, yeah. clothes, and other things, like that's a real. Yeah. Re yeah. Well, when, um, when shipping prices went up during COVID, I noticed a lot of smaller brands using that as a chance to build local, find manufacturers in the U.S. because the cost of shipping from overseas was so much higher that it was actually it was actually making it more comparable. Um, so it's interesting to think about kind of these external factors. And I don't know if those brands have stayed closer to home since shipping yeah. prices went down again, but it is, you know, one of those externalities that seem to be good for for brands that made that choice. There's a there's a message we share in the book that it's, you know, the individual actions are expected, right? So eating less beef, doing our best to get that electrical vehicle, you know, vehicle when it's available and things like that. But it's the collective actions, Hallie, that make the world of difference, right? So advocating for your city to get chargers and protected bike lanes and switching to clean energy to push the companies that we buy from to pick more just sustainable practices, right? Where they source, how they power, how they produce, because that's actually where we need to be spending a lot of our energy, right? It's pushing the larger companies, larger organizations, the government bodies to help with this fight, right? Because if a company decides, right, when Apple chooses to make which they do all the time, by the way, cleaner, you know, recycled aluminum or clean energy, we all benefit from it. When a government says we're going to phase out fossil fuel vehicles by 2035, like California has, we all benefit, right? Like we need collective action to step up. This whole idea that, you know, of the carbon footprint, it's on you, like is such an unfair thing that's been put on people's shoulders. Like what we have to realize is that we need to lean on each other. <laughs> and guess what? When we do, it doesn't take many of us to put the emphasis in a place we care about and can make things better, right? For our environment, for our health, right? This cuts across just, you know, saving the planet from a climate crisis. It, it applies to healthcare too. Oh, for sure. So where does it start? Like there's the chicken and the egg problem, right? Like a company is mm -hmm. not going to produce an electric car unless there's demand, but there's yeah. not going to be demand until people have education, understanding of the benefits of a, a new type of product. So how do you kind of yeah. get that flywheel going? It's a great question. So this is, uh, ooh, this is the venture capitalist hat, right? Mm -hmm. Hallie, you're an investor as well, too. <laughs> it's a clean green thing has to compete on two fronts. One is price, right? If you are creating a new uh, whether it's a food or a way to produce energy or to store it or to, how to move people around, people are going to look at the costs and say, is it more expensive or not? And the delta, right, is called the green premium, the cost for why this is more expensive. What's neat is in a lot of places, there's not a green premium. There's actually a green discount like solar and wind. So when you're making these purchase decisions, you know, actually electric vehicles, some of them fit in this category as well, too, when you think about the cost of gas and other things. It's cheaper to own. Mm -hmm. So as an investor, when you see a technology or an approach that has a path to go from a green premium to a discount, you fall in love with it, mm -hmm. right? Because you know the markets will absorb it and get excited by it. Yeah. The other lens you wear is the performance aspect, which is to your question. If I make a 
electric vehicle that's not more convenient, that's not faster, that's not performant, no one's going to want it. You yeah. know, I, I had this wonderful experience in Detroit and got to spend some time with Bill Ford. And we were talking about the Ford F-150 and the electric, the lightning one. And he's like, Ryan, every single F-150 owner knows about this truck. And they know about this truck because of the way it performs, that it has a battery, that it can keep it. And all the benefits, Hallie, he was sharing with me were, had nothing to do with a tailpipe emissions or, you know, uh, saving the mm -hmm. planet from a climate crisis. It had everything to do with the fact that it was a better vehicle. Mm -hmm. And so as an investor, when you see that the clean green thing is better performing, you run behind it because as consumers, right? Like we pick things that perform better. We like to spend more on those things. And so, you know, that that's a, uh, a good investment. Bet. Yeah. But unfortunately, oh yeah, go for well, it. Well, I was going to say, but <laughs> you know, sometimes it could be all else equal, but the price. And yes. do you feel like there's a generational thing? Cause like I would, I would spend more money. I do spend more money on like the organic strawberries. Uh, cause mm -hmm. I know they're part of the dirty dozen, but like my parents wouldn't. Do you feel like there's a, you yeah. know, when it comes to like, what's it, you know, environmentally better, what potentially is better for your health tends to be more so, expensive. So this is the the big but. So I, I gave some great examples of where things became cheaper or where it did perform better. But to your point, there are places where the clean green thing is still expensive or the clean green thing is not performing well enough. And so for those areas, we have different ways to get folks to adopt. One, I think what you see with the support of clean energy is you provide subsidies, you provide an ability for people to bridge that green premium delta. On the performance side, though, unfortunately, that's one area where no subsidy can <laughs> make something taste better, move faster, or get you through the winter. And so the pressure there on performance goes to the innovator, it goes to the entrepreneur, it goes to these companies that have been in these industries forever, right? Like the cement companies and the steel companies to say, how do we innovate there to build a better product? And that's why John and I often say, you know, we need the now and the new. So we got to scale up the technologies we have today. That's going to get us honestly halfway there. We can cut emissions in half, but if we want to get all the way to net zero, we're going to invent, need to invent and invest and scale up new things, right? New ways of storage, new ways of producing concrete and, and so forth. So you've been a healthcare person and a tech person really for as long as I've known you. What inspired you to get involved in the fight against climate change? I, I should go back to, you know, I've always been at the roots a tech person, right? I um, worked at Salesforce, worked at Microsoft, and then started when, when I started a company, right? Uh, Jimmy and I left Microsoft together and Hallie it was in the enterprise software space, right? You and, and Rock Health were the reason that we took a leap or a chance in healthcare, right? The program and inf investment fund and, and, and community that you created with Rock Health, I think gave people permission to see if they could solve problems in a space that, you know, I didn't have a doctor degree or a public health degree, but you said, you know what, I'm going to find the experts in that world and pair them up with you, Ryan, and the rest of the other founders. And so uh, I have to take my hat off and say, the reason that I have spent time in healthcare is because of you and because of what you built. And for that, you know, journey for me was going to DC, right? After Pipette was acquired by Ginger IO. 
And I got to work on the regulatory side of healthcare, right, at the Department of Health and Human Services. And then I found myself working on the healthcare.gov rescue. And what's so neat about being kind of a plumbing's guy, right? I call myself a plumbing's guy is that, you know, if we can fix the plumbing, the country gets healthier, right? In, the, in this case here, people getting healthcare on healthcare.gov, or if you build a better app and so forth. My, my journey into climate is, a, is an interesting one because I, when I worked in DC, I, I worked uh, in the CTO's office, right? This is in the White House Executive Office Building. And just down the hall were the folks working on the Climate Action Plan, right? This is back in 2012. They had a plan then, Hallie. And in my head, in that moment, I always felt like they've got this, right? The climate crisis is real. Al Gore is out there. You have these plans and it's all going to be solved. You fast forward almost a decade and you realize that, you know, while we had some of the best and brightest working on the problem, they needed us to help as well, too. And so my exposure to climate happened five years ago when I started working for John Doerr at Kleiner. He cares a lot about healthcare, And so that's why I started working with him. But he also did a world of work in climate and clean tech. And he was part of that first wave of investors and the early demise of that industry, to be quite honest, because from that first wave of investment, you have companies like Tesla and Enphase and the Beyond Meats and others that ended up doing really well. But I was exposed to clean technologies, the clean tech ecosystem through him. And this book started out as a way to help us wrap our head around the problem to help us say, well, where do we invest? What nonprofit activities need to happen and what advocacy work should, should come to life? And we had these OKRs and we did, we were interviewing folks because as engineers and investors, we like to talk to people who know more than us. And we said, we couldn't keep that to ourselves. And because it was COVID, we were recording conversations over Zoom and that's where the book was born. And for me, Hallie, I realized that I want always to work on something that has meaning and that affects people. And I found that in healthcare and I find it even so in climate and the work that we do. And what I've seen for anyone who's listening that's thinking about, well, I'm not a climate person. Well, nor was I until a couple of years ago. And then when you unpack the problem, you realize climate quotes right around it with the greenhouse gas crisis and, and emissions crisis, it's how we move. It's how we power our homes. It's how we eat. It's how we protect nature. It's how we build things. And you realize it touches everything. And so it's almost this activation that, you know, yes, the colleagues down the hall have the plan, but they need us, Hallie, to say, how am I going to shape the work that I'm doing and the role that I sit in to be on the side of our climate? Yeah, I love that. So you've always been one of my most optimistic friends in healthcare, which it's hard because healthcare just isn't changing at the pace that we want it to. And then climate, which also <laughs> is not changing at the pace that we want it to. What would be your message to people who feel overwhelmed or pessimistic by the scale yeah. of our climate crisis? And what, how do you kind of maintain hope and positivity in the face of this global challenge? Ooh, two, two ways come to mind. The first is being very clear-eyed. I think that's what I learned from trying to build a company in healthcare. Hallie, it's really hard, right? In healthcare, you know, your savings is someone else's yeah. profit. And I find 
the analogies between healthcare and working in the clean tech space so similar, right? Because if I build an electric vehicle, it means a fossil fuel vehicle isn't sold. If I sell you an induction stove, you're not going to buy a gas stove. And so I think being clear eyed about the challenge, though, is really empowering, right? Because so it then means that, okay, cool, we're all here for the right reason, the why. So let's get deep on the how and how we're going to win and how we're actually going to deliver not just savings, but a real benefit, right? And so I think that orientation, Hallie, keeps me, you know, fighting, right? Both in healthcare and in clean tech. Love it. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. For listeners, you can find Speed and Scale, an action plan for solving our climate crisis at your local bookstore. Ryan, thank you so much for being here. Allie, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our host is Hallie Tecco. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.